Okay, let's begin reading in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15 and verse 11. Uh, this brings us into the middle of a section of three parables, stories that Jesus tells to communicate truth about his Father. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of my estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country. There he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. He began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more or have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Luke chapter 15 is a fascinating passage of Scripture that begins with two verses that give us the reason for the three stories that are listed. Okay, so at the beginning of the chapter, you find an explanation, what's going on in the life of Jesus at this time, and then you find three stories about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. Okay, three stories that explain, and if you will, justify the behavior of Jesus. Because when you come to Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, it says tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear him. That is, there was this growing group of people who had the reputation of being sinners. Then you find an accusation against Jesus from the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the teachers. They were muttering, that is, saying amongst themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, that from them was not a compliment. It was a critique, if you will, an accusation against Jesus Christ. If he is such a good teacher, then why would he surround himself with rebels and reckless sinners like these? Okay, so that's the accusation that comes against Jesus from the religious establishment. The charge is something like this. He welcomes sinners. That word, okay, carries the idea of an eager greeting and expectation and a welcoming. And then when he eats dinner with them, he's saying, these are my friends. These are the people that I love. These are the ones who are the object of my affection. Okay, so this idea of welcoming is used also back in Luke chapter 2 when it describes Simeon who was waiting for to eagerly welcome the coming of the kingdom. Anna, as she waited at the temple, was waiting eagerly for the salvation of God. Same word is used. In the way that Simeon and Anna were welcoming the good news of the Savior, Jesus was welcoming with eager expectation sinners. For the religious establishment, that was deeply troubling. 
because what it appeared to say is that he loved sinners and the religious establishment didn't have a love and affection for sinners because they misunderstood the heart of God. So when Jesus welcomes and accepts and eats with sinners, they bring criticism. His response to their accusation is to share with them three stories. Okay, and the three stories have this intention. They're intended to compare the behavior of Jesus to the heart of God. Okay, that's the goal. The three stories serve to compare or justify the behavior of Jesus by comparing it to the heart of God. And the heart of God for sinners, or for those that are in this context, the lost, okay, the heart of God is revealed through these three stories. So in the end, what Jesus is going to be saying is something like this. Listen to these stories, they reveal the heart of God. Compare these stories to my behavior and you will find that my lifestyle illustrates the very heart of God. So when you come full cycle back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, the conclusion will be something like this. When you see Jesus seeking sinners, you are watching the heart of God at work. This morning I'm going to be beginning a series on the doctrine of the love of God, looking at the theme of adoption in the Bible. How we become sons and daughters of God who once were rebels against the plan and will of God. Okay, so causing us, seeking to appreciate this broader category, this broader topic of what it means for us to be sons and daughters of God. This morning, I want to focus on this text to understand the seeking love of God for the lost. What Jesus does in these three stories is he leaves no doubt about the purpose of God and his heart for the lost. The theme that runs consistently through the story of the coin, the sheep, and the son is this. Something is lost. They are found when repentance occurs. And when they are found, a celebration or a party ensues. Okay, those are the three common strands than one. Something valuable is lost. When it is found, there is this theme of repentance around it, and the result is great joy. So Jesus' implication is this. When I am eagerly seeking and welcoming sinners, I am doing what God does. Okay, when I welcome and embrace and demonstrate affectionate love and grace and forgiveness towards sinners, I am doing what God does. Another way to look at it is this. He is saying, God is the shepherd, God is the woman seeking the coin, God is the father who is seeking his lost son. So, what is the aim or thrust of this passage of Scripture? I think we can break it down in two ways. Number one, it is this. It is seeking to confront a flawed view of God's love. The flawed view of God's love from the religious perspective is this. You earn God's love by good behavior. Okay? If you are living well, then God loves you. If you are a sinner, God does not love you. He is seeking to confront that popular assumption that is very strong within the religious community. I pray this. I pray that it's not a strong assumption in the community at the chapel at Warren Valley. I pray that our heart is God loves and seeks eagerly after sinners, and therefore so should we. So the first thrust here is to confront this false assumption of the Pharisees and the religious teachers in verses 1 and 2. God loves good people. God loves people who are morally trying. No, the answer is this. God loves, according to this text, 
sinners. The second thought that emerges is this. It is to, the aim of this text is to encourage your meditation upon and appreciation of God's love for sinners. Okay, as you read through this text, you should come away from this passage of the Scripture saying, I was like the lost coin, I was like the lost sheep, I was like the rebellious son, all three of whom, by the grace of God, have been found. And as we meditate on that kind of a theme, being lost and found, our response to God should be one of deep appreciation and great affection. God loves us like a father. That's the thrust of this third story. And in this story, God is describing His relationship with us, or if you don't know Him personally, He's describing the relationship He desires to have with you in terms of family. Okay? If you don't know Christ this morning, here's how God sees you. God sees you as lost, and He is seeking to find you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you have been found by the love of God that is displayed through the cross of Christ... This morning, here's the encouragement. Grow to appreciate that kind of love. Grow to be a person who meditates on it, who soaks in it, and says, God, I want to know before you that I am your beloved son or daughter. Deeply loved, yet, and in spite of the fact that I am, in fact, undeserving. The story that we're going to look at this morning is a story that is often known as the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. It really is a story about, I believe, primarily the father. Let's look at the beginning of the story, verses 11 and 12. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. It's a fascinating beginning. Okay, the story basically is about a young son who is asking for his portion of the estate prior to the death of his father, which in a sense would be tantamount to what? Basically saying, if you were dead, I would be richer and I could do, go do what I want to do. And so he comes with a bold request. The twist in the story is that there is a departure from reality, right? What's the departure from reality in the story? That the father actually divides up his estate and gives it to the sons prior to his death. Not the normal means of operating. Why? Because Jesus is telling a story that is meant to illustrate truth about the father. Okay, and in this case, to set the story up and to get us to a place where we can see the love of the father, this father complies with the request of the son and gives him his share of the estate. In spite of the fact that in a sense he was saying, I wish you all were dead because I'm going to go off and do what I want to do with my life. That's the essence of sin and rebellion. He is highly presumptuous in his request. And the request is a shocking factor in the story. Now, after that, we start to get into the story of what happens. And I want to just break apart the story of what happens by giving you three observations. Number one is this. The misery of rebellion. Okay, the misery of rebellion. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. And the idea here is something like this. He goes through a process of liquidating the estate and turning it into cash. Okay, that's the picture. Sells everything that was given to him by inheritance, liquidates the estate, and now what does he have? He has a large wad of cash. And what is his desire? In the story. 
His desire is to go out and get away from the restrictions of home, okay, and live the good life. That's his desire. Without any thought for the future, what is he, what is he consumed by? He is consumed by the immediate circumstances of his life. He wants to have fun. And he's assuming that his fun will be unlimited. Why? Because he is a man of great wealth. If you look at a few verses, it says, when his wealth was gone, he was defined, having received this inheritance, as a rich young man. And he goes out, the text tells us, to spend everything that he has. His life now is characterized by a couple of thoughts. One, it is characterized by recklessness. Verse 13, he went to a a far-off land, away from all the restrictions of home, and there he squandered his wealth in reckless or wild living. So the, the misery of rebellion is first characterized by recklessness, a, in a sense, a foolishness. He was rich and now has wasted his entire estate. But what was he for a while? Here's what I would assume. He came walking into the town with a large wad of money and became the life of the party. He was the guy everybody wanted to be with. Okay, he was the guy who would bring a big smile to your face by spending everything that he had to help to make you happy. So he jumps into a lifestyle that ultimately wastes everything that he has. A foolish, self-centered, self-indulgent lifestyle. Basically, the theme of his life became, I am living to seek for happiness. But what happens right after that? Verse 14. The story moves rather quickly. After he had spent... Everything. So he goes from being a wealthy landowner, a wealthy man with a lot of cash, to a man now who has spent everything. And then there's this fascinating statement in the middle of, the, of this verse. It says, there was a severe famine in that whole country. Okay, and the implication or the question that starts to rise is, where is that famine coming from? Okay, and I think there's a sense of the sovereignty of God in this that is indicated He spends everything. God allows his world to completely implode so that he would see how reckless and foolish his life apart from God was. Why do people rebel? You know why people rebel? People rebel because they think in rebelling they're going to cast off restraint and get the life that they want. The assumption is that rebellion will lead to happiness. It will lead to prosperity. If we could just get rid of the things that hinder, then I will begin to experience a deeper sense of joy than I have currently. That's the heart behind rebellion. Rebellion has never gone into thinking, I want my life to be worse. But that's the misery of it, isn't it? You know, in the heart turn away from God, in the contemplation of stepping into sinfulness, there is always the thought that in this sin, I will find some degree of pleasure. It's what makes it attractive. And that is exactly what happens to this son. He moves from a reckless lifestyle of abandonment to an emptiness. Because verse 14 is is very powerful. It says, after he had spent everything that he had, there was a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in need. Fascinating statement. It is probably for this young man the first time in his life that he has ever experienced such a thing. He was in a place of absolute and utter dependence upon others. Recklessness led to emptiness, which led to, and this I think is the grace of God, it led to a brokenness. 
What is God doing? God is allowing in this story His world to fall apart so that He will get back where He belongs. That's the purpose for the falling apart and it's just the, 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 the disintegration of His lifestyle. Verse 15 then tells us exactly what happens. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. He's now in a Gentile land more than likely because what he's going to do is feed pigs, which would be a complete violation of everything moral. Within. He would be repulsed by this job. But not only is he repulsed by it, he is also so far down that he longs to fill his stomach with the food that the pigs are eating. And the end of the verse is fascinating, right? Because it tells you how far down he's gone. But no one gave him anything. Isn't that the way it works with sin? And the people that you enjoy it with? Okay, when you're the life of the party and you can support the party and you can pour funds into the party, guess what? You are the man. But when everything is gone and when your life falls apart, what happens? The loyalty of those friends evaporates and disappears. So the first part of this story is to point to the misery of rebellion against God. No one was giving him anything. And one writer put it this way. He says that this man had fallen in the ancient culture to the rank of the expendables. Okay, and what that basically is saying is this. In, in the ancient Near Eastern world, <clears throat> the giving of alms to the poor was not a common practice. Because the thought was this, you can help them for a little while, but ultimately it's not going to make a difference in their life. They became the expendables. The people that wouldn't be around that long, so there would be no sense of heart desire to help them in their time of need. That's where this son is. It's why later on the father will say, when the son comes home, he says, this is my son. He was dead, but is now alive. Okay, he drifted to a level that was completely unexpected. That's true for all of us in relationship to sin in our lives, isn't it? Maybe today you're sitting here and you're saying, I am contemplating the good life. Here's what the Word of God says to you and to I this morning. It says, the way of transgressors is hard. You know what Satan always does? Satan is always guilty of false advertising. He always seeks to minimize the consequences of our sin and to exaggerate the positive outcomes. It's what a teenager wrestles with in their heart when they're seeking to find where they fit in the world. They're a Christian, but the world seems to offer temporary and immediate satisfactions. Young person, can I say this to you? And even if you're an older person and in your heart you've been contemplating a departure from God, please understand... Okay, the way of transgressors is difficult. It's a stubborn road. It's a reckless road. It's a broken road. It's an empty road. And that is the experience of this son who has gone off drifting into sin. When you do, you will always get more than you bargained for because the effects of sin cannot be contained. In the end, what has happened to this young man? You know what's happened? He starts as a son. What does he end as in this text? He ends as a slave. And the thought that jumped in my mind as I studied through this was the book of Romans chapter 6. Here's what Romans 6 says. Whatever you yield yourself to, you become a servant to obey. Whatever pleasure you seek in rebellion will in the end rule your life. 
Okay, it can be a crass thing. It can be a good thing. Whatever you yield yourself to, one day you will find that you are underneath of it, serving it. It can be a job. It can be family. It can be money. It can be alcohol. It can be all kinds of things. When you seek to put something in the place that only God should have in your life, you will find that it will rule your, de- your life and you will rue the day that you made that choice. This son went out to live the life. But what he found was that there was misery, deep misery and brokenness and emptiness in reckless living. He wanted freedom, but he found that he exchanged sonship for slavery. And when we reject God as our Father, that is exactly what will happen to us. Folks, please understand this this morning. You and I were made to be filled by God. We were made to find happiness in God. And when we abandon Him and seek to go our own way, what we will always find is something that is less than what we had in Him. Okay, and so the warning emerges out of this text. There is misery in rebellion. The second thought that emerges begins in verse 17. And I think God allowing this young man's life to fall apart is a picture of His grace. It says that when this young man came to his senses as a result of the reckless squandering of everything he had and as a result of the famine that is present, he, he comes around. He, he starts to think about his dad. Contemplates his rebellion, recklessness, brokenness, emptiness. And as he does, he thinks about his sonship, which in his mind, it's all changed, right? He's going to go home and he's going to say to his dad, you deserve a better son than me. So I wouldn't even think of asking for the right to be your son again. Just let me be one of your hired helpers. It's it's a very, very powerful turn in the story. And what it leads us to is the second thought this morning, which is this. After the misery of rebellion, there is the possibility of the blessing of true repentance. Okay, rebellion will bring misery. True repentance will bring great joy in your life. I want you to look at this text and ask yourself this question. What is motivating the turning point in this story? Okay, what's motivating the turning point? Verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, and there's this turn. Go to the beginning of verse 20. It says, so he got up and went to his father. That's the turn. Okay? He comes to his senses and he decides after contemplating his state of affairs that it would be much better to go home to his dad. What motivates the turn? Okay, I think what what motivates the turn is what he knew about his father's love. Because he had been contemplating in his pit of despair. He began to contemplate the love of his dad. And the likelihood that if he went back, it would be very possible that a father such as his would in fact receive him back and let him work as a hired hand. He, he expected that somehow, by contemplating and focusing on his father's love, that he would have the opportunity to return. Now, the other question is this. What defines the repentance in this text? Look at verse 18. I will set out and go back to my father. You know what it is? It's simply this. His life is moving in this direction. He, based upon contemplating his father's love, makes a decision. I will get up and I will go back to my father. Okay, that, just that simple turn 
realizing that rebellion and sin was taking him, and realizing that I don't want to continue down that path, and he makes a decision based on a contemplation of the Father's love. And when he goes back, how does he come back? Okay, and this I think defines his repentance. He comes back as a humble, broken young man. How did he leave? It's fascinating, isn't it? He left as a young man who had the world by its tail with a large wad of cash which would guarantee happiness for the rest of his life. That's what he expected. What did he find? He found the misery of rebellion. As he thinks about his father's love, what happens? He experiences a turn in his heart. And a decisive choice arises. I will stop going in that direction and I will be a man who moves in this direction. That's that's the twist in the story, if you will. And I hope that many of you in this room this morning have experienced that kind of a turning. As he comes back, what does he say? He says, verses 18 and 19, he says, I will say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I would not think of reinstatement as your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And once he, this is fascinating, once he had kind of laid out the story of how he would get back to the Father, he's got it laid out in his mind, he understands and he has this expectation of his Father's love, then he gets up and he says, okay, I'm going home. Okay, it's just a powerful moment in this story. His repentance is marked by the understanding that all we like sheep have gone astray. His turn is very similar to what David says in Psalm 32 and verse 5. He says, then I acknowledged my sin. I just said to God what I was doing wrong. Because folks, listen, genuine repentance is always characterized by a simple confession of the truth about yourself. This young man is not messing with reality. He's not... He's not modifying the story to make himself look okay. There are no excuses. There's no simplification. He just comes back saying, I don't even deserve to be here in your presence. But I desperately need your love and help. So, his determination to turn is met with solid action. The way of true repentance is always hard. But, it is the road that leads to delight. Okay, it is not easy to confess your sin. It's not easy to, to, to experience a true brokenness and repentance and to admit that the way I've been living isn't working. But it leads to a great transition in your life. It is the beginning of the end of your brokenness and emptiness. And that's what this son in this story realizes. The point of the story, I think, is very simply this. If the prodigal son... If this son who wished his father dead took his, his share of the estate and spent it on reckless living and emptied up in emptiness and slavery, if he can come back, if he can find grace with his father, then what does that mean? It means that there is no one sitting in this room this morning who is beyond the hope and reach of God's grace. You know, a lot of times we, we, we beat ourselves up for our failures. And we think that we are somehow beyond the reach. Other people can experience, but not us. No, what God does in this, in this story is He paints a picture of just a deep-seated, reckless rebellion. And that man comes to his senses. The implication, I think, is very simple. If this father, who is a picture of God, 
could forgive his son, who is a picture of the publicans and sinners in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. If he could forgive them, guess what? He can forgive you. He can forgive the person that you're praying for. He can forgive your child that's off in rebellion. It's to say that God's love, when it is contemplated, has an amazing effect on the rebellious heart. So if you're wrestling with sin in your life, you know what you need to do? You don't need to beat yourself up. You need to focus on the Father's love. Let that love of God humble you. Come back to Him and say, I don't deserve what I need, but I trust in your love. Folks, that's the essence of grace. The religious establishment says, if you want the favor of God, get on the treadmill and crank it out. Perform. Earn God's favor. This son has no, he has no expectation that he's going to come back as a son. He's coming back as a slave and he's hoping that the father's love will be so strong that it will allow him to function at a lesser level. He is in for a rude awakening and a very powerful surprise. Second half of verse 20. It says the son got up and went to his father. That's the sign of repentance. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. Now, you can read commentaries about this statement, okay? The father saw him a long way off and got up and went out to meet him. You can read a lot about this. He saw him a long way off. Why does he see him a long way off? Okay? You know why he sees him a long way off? Because in the story... Jesus wanted the Father to be a man who was waiting and looking for his son's return. Okay, you don't have to pour a lot more explanation into it than that. Jesus was seeking to paint a picture for every, every rebel, okay, which is all of us. He was painting a picture for all of us that God is like a father, that when his son turns his back on him and trashes his reputation, he is looking, and this is the idea, he is seeking to welcome eagerly rebels. That's what Jesus is doing in chapter 15 of verse 2. This is what's ticking off the religious establishment. He eats with sinners and He's welcoming them. Because in the Gospel of Luke, table fellowship was the picture of acceptance. It was the picture of honor. It was the picture of being brought into the family. That's what it was. And what was aggravating the religious establishment was that Jesus was doing that with people who had a really sour and bad reputation. That's what was bothering them. So in the story, what's the father doing? The father is doing exactly what the Son of God is doing in verses 1 and 2. He is eagerly seeking. And when they draw near, he welcomes them. He embraces them, forgives them, and puts them at the table of fellowship with God. So the third thought or description from this text is this. First, the misery of rebellion, the blessing of true repentance, and then third, the staggering love of the Father for rebels. That's where this story is going ultimately. The love of the Father for rebellious children in this account is staggering. The Son's initiative, His getting up and saying, I will go to my Father. Beginning of verse 20. So He got up and followed through with His plans. And He went to His Father. What is He met with? Is He met with resistance? Is He met with doubt? about the genuineness and sincerity of his repentance. No. You know what he's met with? I just want you to look at this, how this unfolds, because it is, it is very powerful. The initiative of the Son is met by the enthusiasm of the Father. And this is another 
aggravating, if you will, irritating part of the story, that when this son comes home, the father is glad to see him and eagerly welcomes him like Jesus is doing in verses 1 and 2. You know what that does? That should create such hope in the heart of every person in this room, in spite of where you are in your life. The father in this story is a picture of God. He is a picture of his love, his eager, enthusiastic desire to receive every repentant sinner into his presence. That is so deeply profound and encouraging. The son's proposal is a new relationship. The father's proposal is you are my son. And that for him did not change. The father sees him and is filled with compassion. Folks, understand this this morning. In your fallenness, in spite of how messed up you are, in spite of the brokenness in your life, it is not an inhibitor to the love of God for you. Because through His Son, Jesus Christ, He has paid the consequences of your sin so that He need not lay it on you. He longs for a relationship. He is eagerly waiting to welcome everyone who wrestles with rebellion. And Isaiah 53, I think, makes it clear, all we like sheep have gone astray. We all wrestle at times with a rebellion in our hearts prior to coming to Christ and then sometimes after coming to Christ. You might say this morning, Pastor Tim, why do you say that the Father's love is staggering and characterized by enthusiasm? Why do you say that? Notice, just very simply, look at what He does. When the Father saw Him waiting expectantly, He is filled with compassion. Deep emotions run through his body. And he runs to his son, throws his arm around, arms around him, and showers him with kisses. Okay, when this son turned to the father and said, I was wrong. Once he got into the scope of the father's view, what happens? The father runs to him. Okay, now, you can study this out in ancient literature. You can see it in, 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 in Asian cultures today. Men of esteem, men of wealth, Men who are property owners, who are of men of renown in their community, do not run. Okay? I have never seen Victor John run. Okay? Ever. Okay? He always just has a dignified pace about him. With every, that's the Asian way. It's the way that you, in a sense, communicate something about yourself. That for this father to break... He, this is the guy that could say, and he's going to do it in just a few minutes, to his servants, he's going to say, hey, go kill the fatty calf. Bring out a robe. Get a ring. What does he do? He's directing all the affairs. But first, what does he do? He runs to his son. Something had to put aside the normal protocol. Something had to so overwhelm him with enthusiastic love and joy that he put aside the normal protocol and ran to embrace his son. And you have to, okay, what? He was so flat out happy to see his son coming home that he could not restrain his emotions and his expressions of love. It doesn't say he decided to run. It says he was filled with love and affection for his son and he broke into a sprint. And when he got to his son, he falls upon him. That's the idea of the word. And he showers him with kisses. All of which in the original was in the present tense. It wasn't the cordial shake of the hand. Good. Go ahead, you're back. It wasn't that. No, it was hopefully the way you feel for your own children. 
especially when they come home from brokenness. A deep compassion. Folks, do you understand this? That's how God feels about you. He is a loving father to rebels. And when Jesus was interacting with the tax collectors and sinners, with the people that nobody wanted anything to do with, he was acting like God. And when he seeks you in your sin, he is a loving father who wants to bring you through adoption into a personal relationship with him. He will have nothing of you being a slave. He wants you to be his son, his daughter. He wants you to see how great a love he has for you. And so in the midst of this embrace and all the kisses showering upon him, verse 21, the son tries to interrupt to give his speech that he has prepared. He gets through half of it and then he's cut off. The father, with a flurry of activity and order, says, bring out the robe. That is the robe for honored guests. Bring out the ring. Put it on his hand. The sign of authority. Put sandals on his feet. He will not be a slave. He is my son. And then he throws a feast. And I don't know how, how much you've thought about this. He says, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us have a feast and celebrate. Go back to chapter, or verse 7. He says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety and nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So that when Jesus is in verses 1 and 2, embracing those that need hope, that need forgiveness, what is he doing? He is acting out and living out the heart of God. That's what he's doing. The idea of killing the fatted calf is a fascinating picture because what it means is he's going to throw a banquet that isn't a private family dinner to figure out how the son is doing Okay, it's a celebration. Some of the statistics will say that this would feed between 35 and 75 people when you killed the fatted calf. You know what it means? He's inviting in all of his friends to celebrate with him. Because the one who was lost has been found. The one who was broken has been healed. The one who was lost has been restored. And it happens not privately, but publicly. Folks, do you understand this? God longs for you to come home. If you don't know Him, He longs for you to trust in His redeeming grace. And when you do, heaven throws a party. Not for good people, but for sinners who have acknowledged their sin and trusted God. God's love for every one of us that has trusted Jesus is parental and it is enthusiastic our restoration is a cause of great joy in god that's what this text is basically about when sinners come to god it is a cause for celebration folks let this sink in let this sink in god loves you and god rejoices over you what we're doing this morning at the beginning of our service, spending some time singing songs of praise. What are we doing? We are reflecting back to God, deep gratitude. But what does Zephaniah chapter 3 say? He says, I will rejoice over you with singing. And this, you can imagine how the son feels. So incredibly awkward. The only person that finds the father's love repulsive in this story is the older brother. 
He's the only one who was bothered by such extravagant grace. Why? Because he's been trying to earn the Father's love and stands on the outside of his grace. This son came back with genuine repentance and stands on the inside as a son. One really was a son. One just had the name. Because the grace of God that restores sinners was not appealing to him. It didn't excite him. Instead, it made him judgmental and critical. Which flips me back to the beginning of chapter 15, doesn't it? A religious spirit will always kill the joy of God in your life. An understanding of God's amazing grace will always fill you with joy. And here's the cool thing, I think. Why did the son leave in the first place, the prodigal? You know why? He thought, I'm going to go out, I'm going to spend all my money, and I'm going to find happiness away from the restrictions of home. When he got there, what did he find? He found brokenness, emptiness, and spiritual bankruptcy. He became expendable. But when he turned from his sin and came back, what did he find? He found what he went looking for. Do you see? What he was looking for was already there. An acknowledgement of his sinfulness caused him to do what? To appreciate the Father's love more. So when you wrestle with sin, run to God. When you wrestle with rebellion, run to God. Because there are no happy rebels. Run to God and say, God, I need a taste of your forgiving grace. Because in that I am truly rich. That's why the Apostle Paul could say something like this. For me to live is Christ even if there is loss. But to die is gain. Contemplate, meditate on the Father's love for you. It is a love that is parental. It is a love that delights in you. See it and savor it. Rejoice in it. 1 John 3.1 says this, See, behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. We are called sons and daughters of God. Folks, does that stun you? Does that amaze you? That God loves you like that? In spite of the fact that all of us like sheep have gone astray? And if you are contemplating rebellion in your life, let the seeking love, the enthusiastic, eager, seeking love of the Father prompt in your heart this morning a deep repentance that goes to God and says, God, I am not going to turn away from you to seek what I can only find in you. Let the Father's love, His seeking love, prompt in your heart a true and deep repentance because that repentance will always do this it will unleash the amazing love of god in your heart a love that is so strong that it will prompt in heaven a celebration and if you're struggling with loving those that don't know christ see how great a love the father has given to you See, who is Jesus after in this story? What's his aim? His aim is to correct the self-righteous pride of the religious people in his sphere of influence. He's saying to them, God loves sinners. The question that fires back to me is this, do I? Do I care enough to not just simply be looking, but the text says eagerly seeking with a desire to welcome into the kingdom of God? Folks, when you love people like that, you're acting like God. 
Jesus was being accused of something here. Loving sinners. What is Jesus' response? When I love sinners, I'm acting like God. Could you be accused in how you live your life of acting like God in this way? Do you love people so much that it prompts an active, seeking, enthusiastic heart for the salvation of those around you? Love, true love, pursues sinners and welcomes them. And if this morning you know a personal relationship with God, you are His daughter, you are His son. Because in His love, He sought you through the cross of Calvary. Paid the price for your rebellion. Offers you the gift of eternal life. And if you have trusted Him, He has brought you to a place where true joy, where true happiness can be sustained forever and ever. May God help us to honor and to know His seeking love this morning. Father, as we close our discussion in this text,